It's a life of following after Jesus as our master, as our teacher, as our rabbi. We recognized last week that he is the mighty storm king who even in the middle of the storm can calm our fears, can, can calm the storms that rage in our lives both outside and within. And as we continue the series this morning, as we look through the gospel story of Mark, I invite you to join me in prayer and asking God again to bless us, not only through his presence and the power of his spirit, but to speak to us through his word this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we come this morning because we are holding on to you. In the middle of the storms of our life, God, sometimes you are the only anchor that we have to hang on to. And so we ask, God, that you would meet us here in this place and that you would speak to us through your word and that you would help us to see not only that we are in your hands, but that you have a call on our lives, that you have called us to go on mission with Jesus, to understand that we don't need to be afraid of the storms of life or of the the powers of evil in this world, but we can trust in you as the maker of all creation that you have a plan for our lives and you can fulfill your will and your word if we put our trust in your son, Jesus, who gave his life so that we might have life. Speak to us again this morning. Give us the courage to respond and to go out again today in obedience to fulfill your calling in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue the story in the Gospel of Mark, again, we're going to be looking a little bit at the context of the larger section of chapter 6, but we're going to drill down a little bit into the story of the sending of the twelve because it's this small little story, but it's rich with symbol and meaning. And in order to understand the larger context of what Mark is leading us through in the story, it's going to be helpful to look at this story of Jesus sending the twelve. As the story continues this morning, we'll see that the encouragement for Jesus' disciples to not be afraid, but to believe in Jesus, continues to be one of the emerging themes that Mark is wanting us to understand. But the challenge that we're seeing is that believing in Jesus and not being afraid is a lot easier said than done when push comes to shove and things don't go the way we hope or expect in life in this world. If you were with us last week, you recognized that after demonstrating his own power over the forces of nature by calming the storm on the sea, by casting out a legion of demons and making pigs fly into the Sea of Galilee by healing chronic illness and even raising a girl from the dead. What we see in chapter 6 is Jesus then returns to his own hometown to find that his own family and friends reject his message and they don't believe who he is. And it says he could do no miracles there except for heal a few sick people. And so this question of who is Jesus and do we believe that he is the Messiah of God, that he is the one who's come to rescue God's people, continues to be an open question for the characters in the story. We pick up the story then in the second half of verse 6 in chapter 6, where it says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. 
Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Then they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, we're going to pause there because I I really want to take some time to unpack this story. But if you look at the larger section, immediately following this, we have this amazing, gruesome story about how John the Baptist is is betrayed by Herodias and King Herod has his head cut off and brought to her on a platter. So John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, is executed right after Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. And then he asked them to feed 5,000 people where they don't have money or food to do that. And there's this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And ultimately see Jesus demonstrating his miraculous power again when he walks on water. Now, we're not going to have time to, to go through all of that today. But this context of what Mark is wanting us to understand, I think, is contained in a nutshell in the sending of the 12. And so I want to take some time to kind of look at the features of the story first and then begin to understand what this might have for us as we explore the question as Jesus' disciples, are we too called to go out with a message for, of good news for people? First of all, it's significant, scholars say, that in the beginning of chapter 6 here, Jesus identifies himself as a prophet. If you read back at the beginning there, it says, in his hometown, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So Jesus is identifying himself in this line of of biblical prophets. And and what is a prophet? Uh, A prophet is not somebody who simply has, like, psychic ability to foretell the future. Although foretelling the future can be a part of biblical prophecy, we understand that a prophet is somebody who is authorized by God to be his spokesperson, to be his messenger, to bring a word of God to God's people that will challenge them or bless them in their behavior and how they're living life. Traditionally, prophets were regarded as having a larger role in society that promoted change in the culture as a result of the message that they brought from God. Now, we recall when Jesus launched his public ministry at the very beginning of the story of Mark in chapter 1, he comes announcing that the time had come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So from the very beginning, Jesus is bringing a message of repentance from God. It's a prophetic message that God is calling his people to turn back to him. And that that's good news because in turning back to him, we experience the deliverance and the healing that comes from the power of God in our lives. And that's what we've been seeing evidence through all of the work that Jesus is doing in his ministry. And now he expands that mission by sending out the 12. And what does he send them out to do? He sends them out to preach repentance, to cast out demons, and to anoint the sick for healing. This list of activities should begin to become a little familiar for us right now, right? I mean, that's what Jesus himself was doing, and now he authorizes these 12 disciples to go out and continue the mission and the ministry that he has begun. So what are some of the features of this story that that might help us to understand the larger context of what Mark wants us to take away from this section of the story? First, it says that Jesus invests his disciples with his authority over the spiritual forces of this world. He gives them his authority, his power to carry on the same work that he's been doing. It's not their own strength and power that they go and do these things with. It is with Jesus' authority and power. Secondly, he sends them out two by two. Now, is this like Noah and the ark? 
you know, the disciples came two by two. Well, scholars suggest that uh, it's really significant that Jesus is sending them out to be his witnesses, to share the testimony of what they've seen and heard about Jesus. And if you understand Old Testament law, anybody's testimony required the presence of two or three witnesses to be legally uh, acceptable in a, in a court of law. And so by sending them out in twos, there may have been some measure of protection by traveling in twos, but scholars suggest that it's symbolic of their role of being Jesus' witnesses and having the authority to testify about who he is and what he's come to do. When Jesus gives them their instructions, we might expect him to give them a crash course on uh, exorcism and uh, how to do miraculous healing and all these things, but, but he doesn't do that, does he? he what does he do? He, he gives them a list of all the things that they can't bring. Okay, guys, I'm going to send you out two by two, and I'm going to tell you what not to pack. He allows them to take a staff and to wear sandals. And, and I think we should consider them lucky. If you know anything about some of the Old Testament prophets, some of them were asked to walk around naked and barefoot. That would be embarrassing if that was our call, right? <laughs> Luckily, they got to wear clothes, but they couldn't take a change of clothes. They had to have a staff and shoes on their feet and one set of clothes. They were commanded to take no food or provisions, no beggar's bag to beg for money as uh, religious zealots, no money belt to, to have a little bankroll for themselves, and no change of clothing. And scholars suggest to us that this list reflects for us something about the character of their mission that we need to understand. To go on mission in this way without anything except a staff and your sandals was an expression of willing poverty and a total reliance and dependence on God to provide. The other thing that it suggests is that as Jesus' disciples would come into any town or village, they were forced then to come humbly, and their audience should know and recognize that they weren't out preaching for their own gain or for their own glory. They were coming with a message from God that they were hoping people would hear and believe and receive. They're sharing an invitation from God himself. This mission that they've been given, like Jesus' mission, is a prophetic call for people to turn back to God, to come to God for deliverance and for healing. You see, this prophetic calling is also illustrated by Jesus' command to take a staff. Now, one scholar suggested it, it may be, we don't know for sure, it may be that he just said, you know, hey, take a walking stick with you because it's going to be hard out there. But the fact that Jesus specifies these things suggests that there's some deeper meaning to what he is asking them to take. It's likely they suggest that the staff represents the authority of a prophet. If you think back through the history of God's story with his people, the, the staff and the prophetic staff has a, a dramatic history going back to the, the beginning with Moses. And you remember Moses' staff was used in all of his prophecy with Pharaoh and in all the stories that surrounded the exodus from Egypt. If you look in the uh, book of Numbers, there was a point where God assigned the leaders of each of the 12 tribes of Israel to have a staff with their name written on it. And then at the end of that story, Aaron's staff is the one that, that blossoms and produces almonds and fruit. And it's a way of God demonstrating who his calling rests upon and who they should listen to. It's a prophet's sense of authority that Elisha used his staff to do miraculous healings. And it also has a connection to the covenant renewal of Israel where God says, I will hold out my staff in the covenant and you will pass under it. So we see that even in Psalm 23, in the depiction of the good shepherd, where David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Like Jesus, his disciples are being sent out to fulfill a prophetic role in the culture in which they live. To call Israel and ultimately all of humanity to come back to God to experience healing and deliverance and wholeness in their lives. That's also why they're to accept the first accommodations they are offered when they come to a town and not try to upgrade to better accommodations if something else comes along. And they're to shake the dust off their feet. All of this is about their humility coming, bringing this prophetic message of deliverance from God if people will choose to receive it. Now, this shaking the dust from your feet is, a, is an interesting phrase, and it doesn't appear too often in the Bible. And, and so it was interesting to read through and see all the different aspects to how this plays out in the story. First, if any place does not receive them or hear their message, Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet and move on. So part of the, the reason for this is there's a sense of urgency to their message in this story. There's no time to waste arguing with people, trying to convince people, trying to have enough proof that you're going to get people to change their mind. This gesture, again, is a prophetic sign that, that the people aren't rejecting the disciples. They're rejecting God by not receiving the message. The messengers of God don't invite Israel to accept God's reign if it suits them or if they're uh, able to be convinced. They confront them with a, an immediate yes or no decision. And if the answer is no, that's fine. Then, then move on. If people reject the message, they will choose to deprive themselves of this healing and deliverance that God is providing. Secondly, shaking the dust off of one's feet conveys the same idea in our modern phrase, I wash my hands of it. See, the disciples were not responsible for the level of acceptance of the people they shared their testimony with. Their only responsibility was obedience to go out and share the message. Thus, shaking the dust off one's feet isn't a, an internal condemnation of the people. It, it simply identifies the lack of the receptivity of the soil. Remember the parable of the soil and the seeds? And there's all different levels of receptivity. Well, what is soil made of? Or what is dust made of, I guess I should say. It's dry soil, right? And so there's this connection to the sowing of the word. Those who are sent out to sow the word of God, like Jesus was, are not responsible for the receptivity of the soil. And if the soil is not receptive, they can just shake that soil off and move on. They're not responsible for the outcome. The outcome is God's responsibility. And in reality, no one can co coerce or entice or threaten people into the kingdom of God, can they? I mean, if you think about it, God never treats us in that way. God doesn't force himself on anyone. Each person has to make their own decision whether or not to receive this gift that he's offering. And Jesus is recognizing for his disciples that people in this world can and will reject the message that Jesus brings. Finally, this shaking of the dust should not be a phrase that we use in as, as an excuse to move on when things get too tough. That's not what's going on here either. On this side of the cross and resurrection, we know the outcome of the story. We recognize that the mission of Jesus is an ongoing, never-ending mission that he's given to his disciples, and we need to be careful about writing people off too quickly. Sometimes patient endurance is called for. But there's also wisdom in not feeling that we have to make ourselves responsible for people's choices and their decisions when it comes to Jesus. We're simply called to share our own testimony, to be witnesses for Jesus about what he's done in our life, and then trust God to be responsible for the results. 
Mark tells us the disciples go out and they obey Jesus' instructions. They preach repentance. They cast out demons and they anoint the sick with oil. And he kind of stops there. He doesn't tell us what happened. He doesn't give us any details. In verse 30, later on, he simply says they came back and reported to Jesus what they had done. And this is the first and only time in Mark where Mark identifies them as small a apostles. And the word apostle simply means one who is sent out. Likely, this is because Mark sees their experience here not as the beginning of their own ministry, but as a training ground preparing them to understand what was going to happen to Jesus, but then to understand what his call would be once he was uh, brought back from the dead and empowered them with his spirit. It introduces them to the requirement of total self-sacrifice and commitment to this mission that God has given them. It also acquaints them with the reality of rejection. You cannot get into this Christian walk and be easily offended. You have to have a tough skin and recognize if they rejected Jesus, the chances are that they're going to reject his disciples as well. If they didn't believe the Son of Man when he was on earth, what more likelihood are they going to believe his disciples when they come and, and claim the same things that he did? So it suggests that they are continuing to be prepared for Jesus' reality about what is going to happen to him in his own death. And that's where we see this other factor in the story is that the sending of the 12 and they're coming back and reporting to Jesus brackets this amazing story of John's death, right? The, the, the forerunner of the Messiah, who Jesus in Mark 9 will identify as the Elijah, the prophet Elijah returned, is executed and, and it's a foreshadowing of, of Jesus' own death that is about to ha- happen. When what happens to John will happen to Jesus, and what happens to Jesus may very well happen to his followers as well. If you are called by Jesus, you have to understand that you're called to be at least open to the possibility that it may too require the ultimate sacrifice to follow on the path where he is gone. By identifying himself as a prophet in Nazareth, Jesus links himself to the fate of all of God's prophets throughout history. And the report of John's execution is a reminder that as John was handed over, so Jesus will be handed over. It casts a shadow of death over this mission of his disciples that he sent them on. One author, David Garland, said this, The death of John throws a bit of cold water on the rush of excitement that being able to cast out demons and heal illnesses might bring. Think about that, right? These disciples are given the power to cast out demons and to heal illnesses. And and can you imagine how exciting it would be and how how tempting it would be to think about how great we are and what amazing thing this is that Jesus is calling us to follow in his footsteps. But then you see what happens to John and you go, hmm, I'm not sure if that's exactly the idea I had when I signed up for this mission. The power to do miracles does not grant the disciples immunity from the suffering and death that Jesus also experienced. In fact, it actually makes it more likely, doesn't it? So, how is this good news? The world is filled with enemies of God who will try to rub out the messengers of God at every turn and the disturbing message that undercuts the very power and control that we as human beings think we have in this world. But it will not work. 
Suffering and death will never have the last word in God's world. When this world has done its worst to rid themselves of prophets like John and Jesus and his disciples, and perhaps even you and me, if we believe that we are also called to be followers of Jesus, it is the God who raises the dead that has the final say in who lives and who dies in eternity. And who enables his disciples from the beginning not only to live this walk, but to remain faithful even in difficult circumstances. The kingdom of God advances even in spite of murderous evil in the world. And in spite of all the negative circumstances that we might face in our own lives. We haven't resisted to the point of death in our own spiritual walk often in America, right? We, we live in, 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 a, in a place of freedom where we can worship how we see fit. We, we live in, in lives of comfort and ease. And, and yet the reality is that the call of God in our lives is to give up everything for the sake of this mission if that's what God chose to call us to do. How many of us, if God called us today to, to sacrifice everything, would be really ready to do that? I don't know if I would. And I'm a pastor. But that's a, that's a big challenge, isn't it? If you think about the reality of the call of God to sacrifice everything in your life for the sake of his mission and not your own comfort, not your own gain, not your own glory, that is a big challenge that we as his disciples have to face up to every once in a while and ask ourselves, are we called? Are we on mission with Jesus? And what are we willing to sacrifice in order to fulfill the mission that he's given us to fulfill. You see, when Jesus calls us, he sends us out. To be a disciple is to be called by Jesus. To be called by Jesus is to be sent as a small a apostle, to be a sent one, to be a prophetic voice in your relationships, in your community, in your culture, at your workplace. But do we have the courage to speak up and share our testimony or do we cringe in fear because we know we actually live in a culture that is becoming more and more hostile to Jesus and to the message of the cross? In this prophetic mission, Jesus doesn't promise us worldly success or creaturely comfort. He simply calls us to go and to trust totally in dependence on God for what we need to be healthy and happy in our lives. So to wrap up for today, what are, what are the characteristics of this calling in our lives, of the mission that God has given us to fulfill? What can we take away from this story for us? First of all, I'd like to suggest that our call is not to go out and preach information at people and hope that they're going to believe the information. That's not what the disciples are actually doing if you see what Jesus' commands were to him. Our call is to bring the very healing and deliverance of God into people's lives so that they experience a very transformation and change of their experience in this world. You see, our testimony isn't that we have this great power or this great message that if they just believe it, everything's going to change. Our message is that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was broken and sinful and, and, and wandering away from God, but God's grace and mercy brought me back and brought me healing, and now that same healing is available to you. We are God's witnesses of the grace and the mercy that he's given us in our own lives. You see, the good news isn't about just going out and saving souls and notching up spiritual wins on our gun belts for Jesus. It's about bringing the very healing and deliverance that God has provided into the lives of people. We have the same power that rose Jesus from the grave in us. We sing that song here, right? 
The same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. That is a part of our testimony and our mission is to bring that power into the lives of other people, not because of our own strength, but because of God's call to be Jesus' disciples. You see, there's a sense of urgency in this message, even today. Even all these years later, there still remains an urgency to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand, just as it was then. It is at hand now. It is here. It is now. The time for decision is not tomorrow. It is today. When when we are confronted with the good news message of Jesus Christ, it's a yes or no decision. Everything the disciples are asked to do is intended to convey the reality that they go out with this authority from Jesus to offer this good news message to anyone who they come in contact with. And to ignore the message is to make a choice. Are we willing to see the urgency of the gospel in our time, in our culture, for those who don't know Jesus, for those who are perishing, for those who are lost in darkness? Do we have a sense of of fire and passion to see this word get out into a world that is in so desperate need of the good news of Jesus' gospel? Do we recognize that we've been given Jesus' authority to bring that good news and that deliverance and that healing into people's lives? And if we're not participating in that in some way, are we squandering the resources that God has given us to fulfill the mission. The last thing that I'd like to suggest for us is that this kingdom of God is a movement of God that cannot be stopped. And that gives us hope. The kingdom of God is a movement of God that cannot be stopped. And that gives us hope. The beheading of John the Baptist doesn't silence God's message. Twelve more people are raised up and sent out to follow him. Though one is rejected, the work continues and expands through God's spirit and God's power. Death to God's messengers will never defeat God's cause. Justin Martyr has a famous dictum, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's as we follow Christ's example and are willing to give our very lives for the sake of God's mission that we receive the power to fulfill that mission and our experience of God and our intimacy with God and the power of God at work in our lives becomes more and more real as we say yes to go on mission with Jesus. John's death reminds us that this mission Jesus has called his disciples on is dangerous. It's not five easy steps to a happy life. It's how do you lose your life so that you'll find it. The message of the cross is a message of sacrifice in giving our lives away. But it's in giving our lives away, Jesus tells his disciples, that we ultimately discover that we're finding what life is really all about to begin with. It's a mission to a world that is under the domination of forces that are opposed to God and that is conducted under the threat of suffering and death every day. Many around the world today who are Christ followers are giving their lives for this mission. Many will choose to reject the message and to reject the messenger. But does that mean that we should shrink back from responding to Jesus' call to be sent out as his prophetic messengers to carry this good news to those who need it? What we, won't see, what we don't see in the story now but is being foreshadowed is that Jesus, too, will pay the ultimate price. He will give his life for his disciples and for the whole world. But in this process, God is demonstrating that the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Even the death of Jesus can be overcome by the power of God at work in his life and in your life and in mine. The kingdom of God is at hand here, now, 
today. The message of Jesus continues to be the message that we receive, that we are called to respond to, that we are called to share with those around us. We're invited to repent and believe this morning, to turn back to God and to believe this good news message that if if we trust in Jesus and we follow him, what he says will come true for us will come true, that the good news really is good news for us. And whether we live or die in the process, we have hope in Jesus because he lives, we too will live. And as his disciples, this message we are to proclaim today in our own lives comes through the authority and the power of his spirit at work in us. You see, the disciples' mission is an extension of the mission of Jesus. And it's the same mission that he's given to each one of us if we're willing to accept it. It's not about our own comfort or convenience, whether we live or die, but about advancing the kingdom of God in our day, in our community, and in this place. In so doing, what we discover is we discover with the Apostle Paul that to be a prophetic messenger of God is to be an ambassador of reconciliation. That's really what it's all about. In Romans 5, he says we are ambassadors of reconciliation, going out and inviting people to be reconciled to God so that what we can discover is the healing and the power of God to bring wholeness to our lives and to our communities is still alive and at work in the world. How about you this morning? Are you called? Are you on mission? If God were to call you this morning to send you out to a particular person, to someone at your workplace, to someone at school. If God were to call you to serve a a need in the community and to to give a testimony of God's power to bring healing and deliverance to, to our community today, are you ready to go? Are you willing to go without money, without resources, but to carry the staff of Jesus' authority in your life and to share that authority through his spirit to be a blessing to those around us? Men and women, this is our call as Jesus' disciples. And as his church, as we respond to this call to be sent out into the world and into our communities and even into our own homes and relationships, God says that his spirit will bless us and allow us to be bearers of good news and wholeness to those that God would send us to. Let's pray. God, it's so easy to focus on the things that are of benefit to us when we accept Jesus. And yet it's also a challenge to hear again the call of Christ, to go out, to be sent out, to be prophetic messengers of God. God, we don't, we don't like to do that. But this morning, God, as your Spirit speaks to each one of us about how we too can be a part of this call to give testimony, would you bring us together in groups of twos and threes for mutual support and encouragement? Would you help us to to be able to share the good news in our lives, not not beating people over the head with information, but, but sharing the power of transformation through the deliverance and the healing that comes only through your spirit? God, would you work in us again that work which allows us to be empowered to do the things that you have called us to do? And would you give us courage to do that together? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kurt.